0: Hi everyone, my name is Ben Bunda and welcome to the Bunda podcast series, Diamond War, your insider's view to the gemstone and jewellery industry. For those of you who are new to Bunda, we are a Sydney-based jewellery company that specialises in fine diamond and gemstone jewellery. My professional experience over the past 25 years has extended beyond my time here in Sydney, also working in major gemstone and jewellery cities of Hong Kong, New York and Bangkok. During this time, I've had the opportunity to work alongside and meet many of the industry's icons, ranging from the heads of industry through to the gritty traders, and it's these people's stories that will give you an insight into the mysterious world of gemstones and jewellery. So welcome to the Bunda podcast series, Diamond War, an insider's view to the mysterious world of gems and jewellery. I hope you enjoy. Well, David, welcome to Diamond War podcast, it's such a pleasure to have you here as a my first guest.
1: I'm honoured, Ben. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so excited for this.
0: Oh, so, as I said to all of our, uh, to all of you in our, uh, in my intro, David Norman is really part of an amazing uh, family of pearl dealers, six generations, um, and I'm really excited about bringing you know his his story to you today, and also. Um, getting a deep insight into the, uh, the pearl market um, as it stands today and obviously the history of pearls. So here we go. But, um, so David, just give our listeners a, a, an introduction and, and, and a brief overview of, you know, your story and, and then we'll start to look back in time and talk about your family history.
1: Thanks, Ben. Well, um, I've, I've been in the pearl business since I'm 56 years old. I've been in the pearl business since I was 18 years old. I, um, grew up in London and a part of this, this Pearl family that goes back to 1830 um, and have always been obsessed with Pearls all the time as, as a kid going to my dad's office in near Hatton Garden um, and, and learning to, to love Pearls and all the characters in the business. And then luckily, instead of going to university, going to Tokyo and learning the pearl business with my teacher, Mr. Jerwood, who owned the pearl farm with my dad in Thursday Island here in Australia. Yes. Yeah, it was. It's been a, an amazing journey, and then to, to have been able to meet all the, the great men of the pearl business during my lifetime, who were still alive, and then were you know at the top of their game when I was eighteen, has been absolutely
0: amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. You you, you talk about the, you know, your teacher, and obviously then your father. Um, but it, the gemstone and jewellery business really is a family business, isn't it? It's it's a common thread we see. It's very rarely that you don't not see a family involved. Very
1: in much so, and when you go into those huge families that you get in in countries like India, where they've where they've had mines and cutters and polishers and jewellery makers for thousands and thousands of years and you see pictures of Lord Krishna wearing pearl necklaces and you know the history of from Burma and and imperial times and go back to the Mughal warriors and um, and, and then you go into China and America. It's very much a, I suppose, dynastic dynasty. It's very you know, in, in, in traditional British life a few hundred years ago, the first son inherited the um, the estate, the second son became a soldier and the third one had to be a priest. And I think in these larger families in, in bigger, in countries where they had more kids, especially India, there'd be a lot of kids coming into the business. And it was just the, the thing you did. I did what my dad did. I did, you know, like Bruce Springsteen saying, I used to do just like my daddy did. And it's very, it, it, it you know, it's got such a rich heritage. It's, part of our lives
0: but you know there's something really charming about that as well because i think in this you know where we're here 2020 um we've just had you know a, a economic boom at the end of the you know 20th century we've had you know a dot-com boom we've got you know on tech entrepreneurs who make you know billions of dollars within you know a year or two and it's there's an element of you know every man for himself and how much money can i make how quickly can i make it which is you know there's something admirable in a lot of the people who really are successful but um maybe with this covid thing that's come out now there's a little bit more of this well you know what's what's meaningful and what's what's good work so maybe people will be thinking well i'll i'll stick with the team i'll stick with the family and and work and, and do things. I'm sure that crosses over to other industries, which, you know, you you might stick and, in and go for it.
1: And definitely um, the major theme I've seen in the COVIDs, talking to people all over the world is, is what you'd call u- unity consciousness, where people are using the phrase, we're all in this together. And yeah. we're realizing that we're an interconnected world and what happens in Chernobyl affects Sweden and Mexico. Yes. And what happens everywhere it's all interconnected and I and I do think we'll see when we come out of this we'll we'll see a, a much more connected time where people really put enormous value on relationships and being more kind and loving mm. to to each other whereas before uh, since the industrial revolution it's been you know since the 1800s well how much is in it for me and what can I get
0: yeah. Well, You know, and that's an, another very interesting point. You, you, you know, if you think back to gemstones and jewelry, um, you, you know, the, in my experience in the jewelry business, and when I see people buying fine gemstones, and they, and you can see that there's a deep emotional connection to the gemstone they're purchasing and giving as a gift. And I think that that's where um, it, it really is an understanding of the true driver of of why. Uh, pearls or, or diamonds or any other gemstone has gone on and stood the test of time because there is that interconnectedness with the number one the value but second of all the 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 meaning of the family meaning or the the tales. The very much that so case.
1: and as you see in the great collections of jewelry um, when they come through at auction for example Marie Antoinette's baroque pearl sold for 35 million American dollars last November and then Elizabeth Taylor owned La Peregrina the famous pearl that Queen Mary was given for a wedding present by King Philip of Spain in the 1550s and the same pearl 500 years later at 2000 is now in a museum but um but Elizabeth Taylor was given it in the 70s by Mike Todd her second husband I think and it sold in the auction of all her jewellery for about $11 million. But to trace that pearl back and realise that Mike Todd was in love with her and bought her that. And King Philip of the Spain might not have been in love with Queen Mary. And they had to try and make a baby and unite. You know, like, yeah. In those days it was more marriage for political reasons. Yes. But, but gemstones through history have such importance and meaning. I'm lucky enough to find out that my grandfather on my dad's side came from... Russia went to Paris and then to England, and he bought three imperial Easter eggs um, the royal serpent egg and a couple of others in 1927 in Moscow and then sold them to the Fabergé dealer Wartsky. But the but the uh, the the eggs were like a a gift from the Tsar of Russia to his wife to commemorate Easter and resurrection and rebirth and everything and so there's so much symbolism in jewelry through the ages whether it is pearls or diamonds or rubies or whatever it is and the the fact that it gets handed down the line like my favorite possession is a Bulgari clanky bracelet of intaglios that my mum wore every day and, and, and when she was giving away lots of her jewellery, um, I said, Mummy, I, I want that bracelet, if I may. Because she had lots of other things that were yeah. different and nicer, maybe, that my sisters um, wanted. But I really wanted that. And whenever I touch it today, it's Mummy. It's like, um, yeah, they, it's yeah. my mum. She's been, um, she passed away 16 years ago now. But I've, it, it's so important, because it was her clanky Intaglio Bulgari bracelet. Yeah. yeah,
0: and there's no value you could put on that. Um, um, no, completely
1: yeah, priceless. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, that's amazing. Like f- number one, the, the the buying of the Faberge eggs and selling them back in the to Wozniak. That's just an incredible story. But why don't we go back and and. there's so much we can talk about here but let's just go back to the beginning there's six generations of norman or or, or pearl dealers in your family and so nathan goldstein your um senior born in odessa russia
1: in odessa russia so the family started off apparently this is go we go back seven generations in this story and they went from russia to hong kong and somebody in the family nathan goldstein's um father made a lot of money in a brothel and an opium den in hong kong <laughs> and to legitimize the money this is the family story that i found out when we had a, a family melbourne anniversary of a hundred all the relatives in the last hundred years were there it was in people in the 90s and everybody um so so with this money he sent a son to canada and a son to australia which is nathan goldstein senior and his brother and they were to make money in diamonds but they didn't make any money in diamonds and so Nathan Goldstein senior became a pearl dealer and there was a big pearl boom on for natural pearls this would have been about 18 he would have been about um, born 1830 his son Nathan junior was 18 um, 60 and um, and he married Rebecca Goldstein sorry his sister was Rebecca Goldstein who who um, married my Grandfather from Russia, Michelle. who was called Michelle.
0: Okay, so let's just go back a little bit. So, just explain to me what the natural pearl market was like in the nineteenth century in Australia. What, 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 okay. what were they looking for? What, so, what did they have?
1: So, the difference between, for the layman, the difference between natural pearls and cultured pearls. Cultured pearls, you take an oyster, you put a nucleus in, and you, and the oyster's irritated, covers it with nacre, and makes a pearl. And this was started in nineteen oh six by. Um, Kokichi Mikimoto in Japan but if you go back for the the preceding millions of years since oysters have been around if an oyster was naturally irritated by a little crab or a sea creature or an irritation of any kind it produced a pearl, it's the gift of Mother Nature, oysters make pearls, and so literally for as long as there's been oysters, there's been pearls, but in recorded history, we know it going back a few thousand years, all pearls that came out of oysters were natural, and my dad told me that um, before money, a lot of islanders would have just dealt in shells, they were shiny, and they could swap them and use them as currency three, five thousand years ago, and then once once people could do it, they started making um, items out of shells, button a hundred years ago mm. at the turn of the century all the buttons came from mother of pearl the inlay of pistols the um the, the crucifixes all sorts of things yes. were made of mother of pearl and if you found a natural pearl you were very excited and the first huge treasure trove of natural pearls came in the 1500s when they discovered the new world north and south america and all ah, the spaniards yeah, and the yeah, portuguese yeah. brought them back to europe where they found their way into the royal families principally but it it was the the richest resource in the world 500 years ago. Yeah,
0: Panama and places like that. Venezuela, pa- Panama,
1: yeah. um, all those explorers uh, and that's why the the Spaniards and the Portuguese which was a tiny little place uh, Portugal but yep. it became the most important seafaring nation with Vasco da Gama and Cortes and all those great conquistadors who took Catholicism yes. into south america and and north america and brought back all their natural pearls and, and things but as long as there have been rivers in scotland and america
0: everywhere and oysters there's been pearls so these natural so we're, we're talking the natural pearl business pre-cultured pearls beginning of the starting at the beginning of the 20th century obviously um the natural pearls were being used in jewelry but was there a use of trade for pearls as capital as it was a it- or do you um, think that they were for, for wealthy people? Who it was making... mainly
1: for wealthy people and um, for, for adornment. Yeah. But pearls were in the, in, had a complete boom in the roaring 20s, uh, and in the 1920s. And there's the most famous story in the pearl business is that Cartier swapped their, business, their building. Well, they bought a building um, on 5th Avenue and 56th Street for the price of two natural pearl necklaces and $100 dollars. From a customer and there's a plaque on the store showing that and at the time everyone said you're completely crazy the pearls are worth so much more but of course now they've got this amazing building bu- and- b- Building, um, and then in the Wall Street crash of 1929 everybody used to pay with promissory notes my dad mm-hmm. told me and so you'd buy the natural pearls and promise to pay your dealer I promise to pay you in a, in 90 days or a hundred days mm-hmm. but nobody could honor their notes and they all lost their value and their money when everything crashed in October of yes. 1929 and my granddad um, apparently lost his fortune and had to move the family from Paris to London where he set up the Australian Pearl Company in 1934 okay. but he was a great wheeler dealer and I would imagine in the crash there would be some amazing deals for, for buying things.
0: Well it's a, it's that, that ultimate fear trade you know we see very large diamonds or gold being purchased when you know there's a recession or there's a crash in the market we've seen a little bit of that recently yes. with yes. Covid in large diamonds so it's uh they are anomalies obviously they're yes. brave, for the brave um but it's uh there is that store ultimate store of value right? yes
1: so and, and natural pearls um have have had a, another second boom the last 10 years yeah. um where where they've fetched phenomenal prices well, culminating that, with marie antoinette's Pearl selling for thirty-three million American dollars. Yes, yeah, so
0: two thousand and eighteen. I've got $36, 36 million, or maybe that was. Yes, the and if juice. you made a
1: copy of it and said, David, I want you, to, I'm going to copy Marie Antoinette's pearl. How much you going to charge me for a, a Baroque pearl like that? We'd be pushing it to spend more than three to five thousand to ten thousand dollars. But the, yeah. but the natural version sold for thirty-three million. So because it's natural, where there's no nucleus, you, and if you x-ray it, you just see a pinprick at the mm. center, and you just see layers of pearls mm-hmm. like an onion with layers and layers of, of nacre, yeah. and and that's what it is, but it's the provenance and the and the history. And the Duke of Windsor, of course, gave magnificent jewels to Wallace Simpson, the Duchess of Windsor. Oh, um, yes. And so whenever there's an iconic family story as well, the provenance seems absolutely so there, there is is a lo-
0: So with the history of, obviously, the, pre-cultured pearls the provenance of most antique natural pearls is usually quite amazing yes. and therefore that adds to the to the intrinsic value I, I i you know in my experience obviously we see the difference in price between uh, when we do find in the estate jewelry trade or in the antique trade we find a natural pearl we, we were lucky enough to find quite a large one once mm. which we sold very quickly um and probably the dealer who bought it went on and sold it on and on and on again for much more but um that did that did emerge here in in sydney which was quite interesting so so the natural pearl business was australia could have a natural pearl business because we were in the area where we have all this shell growing up around the northwest territories of australia 80,
1: 80 mile beach um at the top of northwest of australia centering around Broome. And at the turn of the century, when there was a boom on for the shell in the shell products, 1900, yeah. there were 500 boats with 500 captains, 500 diving crews. They're all searching for shells, and if they're lucky enough to find an amazing natural pearl as well in this boom that went on till 1929, fortunes were literally made overnight, uh, a bit like opal miners yes, coming out yeah, here yeah, in yeah. 1900. And you'd had the California gold rush, so jewellery as a as a thing or as a commodity and gold for example yeah. in in 1890s you had that mass migration to california for the gold mm. and before um before that i suppose people had migrated to find tin in cheaper That's days the favor, but man. but but opals were found in queensland and pearls in, in broome and it was an extraordinary time like broome's a population when it swells to its capacity of 25,000 in the what we call in Australia the dry season. But in the wet season, when it's boiling hot and rainy, it's like five to 10,000 people. But to imagine 500 full crews. And they were from all over Asia and everywhere, di- diving down to get the oysters, to get the pearls. And so that was an enormous um, industry in itself and, and part of the great wealth. And they say that Australia in 1901 was the richest country In the world, it had, um, wow, it had all the sheep, I suppose, and agriculture, and then it had some minerals as well. But I suppose agriculture was the big part of it, and all that land, and Melbourne was the centre of the gem trade, I think. Then,
0: yeah. So that's interesting. Another point I want to talk about was, you know, the the pearl divers. You know, it's a hard man's game. This right, like, but what I know of pearl divers are some of the guys who are my age, who you know went off and were doing the cultured pearl business and diving and they were always fit and uh, they could do the time and the long days, but the original natural pearl divers, it was a lot more uh, rugged, uh, let's say.
1: It was, and the tides in Broome around this pearling area are 15 metres, 45 feet. So that means the sea rises 45 feet every day twice and and descends and there's massive tidal movements. And the divers had hard hats on and the pipe coming down with some air and if they came up too fast they got the bends which is yeah. where there's a nitrogen bubble in your system and and life was so cheap there's two cemeteries one for Japanese and one for Chinese and then another cemetery full of dead dead divers and it was a John Steinbeck wrote the book The Pearl it was a yeah. big a big industry so my great uncle um, Alec Goldstein was the doctor in Broome and he put the first iron lung into the Broom Hospital in 1937. So, so Nathan Goldstein's um, daughter Rebecca married my grandfather yeah. and his son, his son became the doctor in Broome in 1937 and put the first, but before that iron lung, if you, if you got the bends you, with a nitrogen bubble you'd die. And life was so cheap, and pearls were so valuable. It was a cruel uh, world, but an amazing, amazing town. You know, yeah, wow. There were Aboriginal divers, there were Malays, Kupangs, all different Thursday Islanders. It was. It must have been an extraordinary um, melting pot. And those divers would be so, you know, like hard drinking, hard swearing men. There were brothels. It was like it was an extraordinary time
0: it's you know it makes me think you know what like what a gold rush would be or when you think about the opal miners and sometimes the you know the danger they put themselves in by just going and going with the fever of hoping striking it big yes um, wow so and that leads on well, I suppose farm, pearl farming like so we have natural pearls we have these pearl divers looking for these very rare natural pearls but then when did pearl farming
1: start? well so kokichi mikimoto wanted and had the dream Um, around the turn of the century 1900s to he was a successful noodle merchant and um, Mm -hmm. he wanted every woman in the world to own a pearl and he was inspired by people like Thomas Edison those sorts of people to be an inventor and up until then only natural pearls were for the top one percent of society obviously or less but he thought if he could copy nature and make a pearl which took about 12 to 14 years before he had success and then his dream was from 1906 onwards was for every woman in the world to possess a pearl. So he had great commercial success um, interrupted by the wars but -hmm. but it really became huge in the 1950s, 60s and 70s but he had success and took his pearls all around the world to the World Fair of Chicago and all over And and that was the birth of the cultured pearl industry in Japan and then
0: so Japan, japan is where this all started so japanese pearls and for
1: 50 years that's all it was and then they copied it in burma in myanmar burma in 1954 australia the 58 59 my dad bought the first australian harvest in 1959 um and then in the the black pearls from french polynesia in 1967 was the first good commercial harvest and then the Philippines followed where basically wherever you have oysters you can make pearls. And then Lake Biwa in Japan made freshwater pearls and China, the Yangtze River, okay. made pearls. And they and they've got three thousand year old pearls from mollusks in the Yangtze River in museums and things. So there'd always been some sort of business, but it wasn't it was only commercially viable in in from the fifties onwards for large pearls, and in Japan from sort of nineteen twenties onwards.
0: Okay, so let me. I'll, I'll just take it back a little bit, just for everybody listening in, so that we can get a good idea. So, Mikimoto in the beginning of the twentieth century with Japanese akoya pearls, the shell is smaller; it's not as big as what we see here in Australia.
1: Yes, it's sort of ten centimeters.
0: Um, I'm good, not good at centimeters. I'm maybe eight. Uh, yes, it's yeah. little. And so yeah. then, and then obviously coming into. Um, and they uh,
1: were fa- they were made famous by people like Marilyn Monroe and Princess Grace of Monaco. Grace Kelly met one on her Coco wedding day. Coco Chanel. Yeah. Man, Coco Chanel wouldn't yeah. go downstairs without her pearls. So when you see those iconic pictures of those um, iconic women, they are they're wearing Japanese cultured pearls yes. of Mikimoto. Yes.
0: So then we we're, we're talking Burma, then Burma onto Australia, then Australia. That obviously goes back into. Um, uh, tahiti which has the black lip shell which produces black pearls and then um, and then obviously the there's the history with the japanese uh, the chinese freshwater pearl but it's a it's a much it's a different oyster that it produces it, multiple pearls as opposed to a single pearl which we have in the yes. classic uh, you know cultured pearl in the south seas it's
1: a Japan. mollusk a freshwater mollusk and it started really in the 70s people started making yeah. freshwater pearls there so different where you get different shapes like grains of rice and um, more, more oblong shapes. Yeah. Yes, potato
0: so shapes. so we so let's talk about the farmers. Okay, so pearl farmers. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, some are incredibly large, uh, successful, wealthy families who've made a fortune out of pearling and there are small farmers. Give me, give me an example of, of, of the two extremes.
1: So um, here in Australia, the Pass Bailey family have made a dynasty a dynasty out of pearling and they made their first pearls commercial successful pearls um they they started um making pearls nicholas paspeli senior would have been making pearls from um from the 1950s and 60s and 70s but mainly he was dealing in natural pearls but would have been a shell dealer as well and um and his son nicholas jr who was born in 1940 1940 Eight, 1948 I'm getting this right yeah yes he he went to sea in, as a young man in his 80s and started collecting shells and making commercial pearls and their first commercial harvest was the day before Nicholas Paspili senior died of a heart attack he saw the harvest and went and had a heart attack and passed away and that would have been about 1984 or 5 he took yeah. me out for dinner in Sydney in 1983 i'll never forget and he showed me five pearls he'd made and i thought they were for sale and kept asking him if i could buy them but he he wouldn't answer me but we had a lovely dinner and his son nicholas junior who would be about um 70 now has made the made the most success out of growing amazing pearls and buying up other other pearl farmers from the 1980s onwards and he bought pearls proprietary limited which was the oldest farm in australia um, which is made famous in Currie Bay and he had the boom which we had in 1989 and 90 in the business that was the um, that was the 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 most important two years in a way where pearls were getting fifty thousand dollars for the most extraordinary perfect perfect round pearls per pearl um, he's at one end of the scale then there were other ends of the scale where there's a, a lovely family the Browns in um, Signet Bay in Australia Yep. and they have been dealing in pearls equally along a long time but they've stayed a small family unit and then they tied up with the Pass Bailey's. but now they run uh, an amazing tourist business called where you visit signet bay yep. and you it's an hour by seaplane from Broome, and you and you and you see a basic raw production in in, in action
0: so we signet bay you know would, would it be a, it's a, it's a bay and it's a sing, it's a pearl farm in one area and it's a yes. five-man operation or
1: you need you need a um you need a secluded bay with good tidal movements to flush nutrients into your pearl farm so the oysters can open and eat the nutrients in the water the plankton and everything um and you just need no humans basically but good tidal flow so so signet bay would literally need of five to 15 people just to keep the oysters clean and in pearl farming you're basically putting a nucleus into a host oyster and then you're leaving it alone for two years except to clean it so that they can open and feed and the more you leave it alone and let nature do its thing the better but it's the when you go to these pearl farms the marine growth and the heat and yeah. the stuff in the water it's like a teeming with life so you're perpetually cleaning oysters and so the Pass Bailey organization has I think they've got I think mean, they've got um, 27 aeroplanes and they've got 300 boats and 1,000 yeah. staff. And the, the, the amount of capital spent on just growing a pearl is phenomenal. And then you go to places like Indonesia, where for the price of five Australians, you have 300 workers cleaning the oysters. So it's a yeah. much um, lower cost base. And if you go to the French Polynesia, it's the major export with tourism of the island is, is black pearls. But if you took the grand total of all Tahitian pearls, you wouldn't get more than $100 million at farm gate, farm basic farm price. In so a you're year. talking
0: about a year's production a, a, for Tahiti yes. value around about $100 million. Um, exactly, yeah. maximum, yeah, yeah, yeah at yeah. the moment.
1: Um, and then the longer you keep your oysters underwater for two years, the bigger the pearls are and the more valuable they are, and you can use your oysters again. But each farming place is, is, um, is different. And pearl farmers are a certain breed. They're absolutely dedicated to making the best pearls they possibly can. And they're sure that their pearls are better than anyone else's. And they prefer the color of their pearls. So as an idiosyncrasy, I'm sure you'll get to interview Nicholas Paspeli yourself, but he's not a great admirer of Tahitian pearls. Then other yeah. people, but in our business in America, my business, where we sell on TV, 70% of the business is Tahitian pearls, 30% is Australian. Yeah. The Philippines make these amazing golden pearls, and there's an amazing farmer called Jacques Bramelec, who was a pilot in, a, in Tahiti. Then he became a Tahitian pearl farmer, sold out, moved to the Philippines, married a local lady, teamed up with a billionaire called Manuel Cuyango, who was the pineapple king, mm-hmm. and they made these incredible farms, with beautiful workers who I say beautiful they're beautifully spirited workers they play Mozart to the oysters and they make these amazing golden pearls and have like 27 retail stores so everywhere there are oysters there are these individual people who are like dynamic people but they all have in common that they're they're not fighting nature they're working with nature but nature's tough there's just so much cyclones and things going on and it's always been a a sort of um, it's like a marriage of man and nature but at the same time you know if things go wrong you lose your whole harvest and in Australia in Broome there's cyclones coming through every year and you just lose all your oysters and have to start again
0: well that it, it's a, a fantastic to sort of hear you connect with um, how passionate these pearl farmers are because in in my experience it's you do realize and in the times that I have spoken to various people in the gemstone industry and also pearl farmers that I've spoken to independently um, you can clearly see that the quality of the pearls and the quality of the work that they do is actually foremost the most important thing
1: and and you know we talk about pearls endlessly like I remember working with Nicholas Pasbally for him and we just talk about pearls we we'd go out for dinner quite often with our wives who would talk about other things and we just talk about pearls and people in the pearl business for years, yes. uh, it, it's an extraordinary thing and I saw this in my dad and I just remembered when I was 15 he sold a pearl for 89,000 English pounds. It was a 15 millimeter round yellow clean beautiful beautiful pearl and I um I never forget it, he let me bank the cheque and I thought, wow, this is a great business daddy. (laughs) You know, It was amazing and he sold it to the Alphadan family and they're the premier family in the world based in Dubai and Doha in natural pearls. They're by far the most successful. And their father, who was called Sheikh Maki, was my dad's best customer. He, He told my dad when he was a kid they only could fish for money. There was nothing, there was no oil, there was no nothing. And he was poor and when he came to London, he stayed in a rather um, crappy hotel in Earl's Court which is where lots of Australians yeah, yeah, have gone yeah. and stayed and the underground went by rattling around and he loved the noise but his two sons stayed in this like the royal suite of the Intercontinental Hotel which was the amazing best hotel back then with um and uh, and he was happy and he argued with my dad every day for two months when it was hot in Doha he'd be in London for June and July or July and August and every and my dad would ask you know a thousand pounds for a pearl and he'd offer 200 and they'd meet in the middle and by the end of two months they'd agree on what they could but then I looked I, I met the family many times as a kid and then the I, it turns out the Alphadans are the most important jewelry company family in the Middle East and they have this huge business in in everywhere and um, that they're another dynasty, and the the Arabians that were so so, you know, important in in modern natural pearl
0: business. So this your your father Boris Norman? Yes. Um, born in uh, 1926
1: no, in Paris. 1926
0: but 26 in Paris. So he, I, I'm look. You've brought some amazing things in here, but I'm I'm looking at his passport, and I can see um, the stamp from when he in. 21st of June 1965 entry point Darwin Australia so is that like
1: that's... he went to Darwin he told me in the 60s to meet Nick Pass Sr and buy natural pearls from him uh-huh. and Nick Pass Bailey Sr not only owned a bookmaker um, where, well, you know like horse betting yeah. he owned the only hotel in Darwin and he was the, the man the leading pearl man As well,
0: he was some guy, huh? Yeah,
1: and Boris, my dad, and would travelled all all over the all over the world buying pearls. His father Michel, his passports with my nephew Charlie, who we'll get to later, but he's number six in the business, and his passport is full of all these places and stamps as well. And so, as a pearl merchant, you you were basically, and you'd go anywhere there you could find a a decent pearl, you'd go there.
0: Well, you know, it's um, I'll I'll share this about me as. But I thinking about this, it makes reminds me back to my experience when, you know, I, I think that it was 1996 and I was, you know, working in my mother's antique jewellery store, yes. but pearls were starting to become the thing. And I remember flying to Tahiti and, you know, I mortgaged my house and went and bought, you know, $180,000 worth of pearls off Robert Wan and I turned up in a red T-shirt and he just looked at me and thought, wow, who's this kid, you know, with a red T-shirt on yes. coming to buy all these pearls? But, uh,
1: and but- Robert Wan made half of Tahiti's production. He'd made a lot of money in the food business with supermarkets and then decided to buy pearl farmers. And he at one time made 50% of, so he was Mr. Tahiti, of the of the annual production. And he's still um, going strong. He's, he's in his 80s and often spends He's half Chinese to Tahitian yes. and, and lives a lot of time. But but he was the man, and his pearls were extraordinary, incredible, incredible.
0: Yeah. But that so that brings me back to this, thinking about you know Boris flying into Darwin in 1965, buying natural pearls. You talk about the negotiation from your uh, your great grandfather yes. or your grandfather, and in, in, you know in London. And 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 I'd like you to ex- share with me how, like, for those listening. Negotiating in the gemstone and jewelry business is is unique in its own way, um, and and it uh, you know share with me you know some of your experience around pearls in negotiating you know and how how you know some I know that some dealers operate in certain ways and others in, in others. So what's some of the good experiences a fra- around how the deals are done?
1: Well, when I was eighteen, I and I went to Tokyo. My teacher, Mister John Jawad, who had who was had his start in life. In their family natural pearl business and my grandfather Michel Norman helped him a lot as a very young man and then he helped my dad a lot and they had a pearl farm together and I said to him on my first day practically what's the best pearl you've ever sold and he said simple the one on the invoice <laughs> then I said and how and how do you buy them properly and he said it's simple I offer my best price for cash and I'd say yes or no but I'll never go back on the, my offer it's that's all there is to it and that was a very Good lesson and he also said if you only deal in the best things you'll there's bags of rum at the top he used to say but if you deal in the rubbish you'll be dealing with everybody and it won't be fun but then i've noticed the indians who are a huge part of the pearl business especially the natural pearl business they like a haggle and the arabs won't like my dad's customer Sheikh Maki. he spent two months haggling and it's a bit like that monty python movie the life of brian that you've got to haggle over everything and if yeah. you don't haggle you don't it's the big game for some of the people I'm personally of the Mr Joward model where you know I'll offer you a thousand pounds and if you'll take it great and if not I'll move on but I notice a lot of people do like do like haggling and negotiating and um, it seems an enormous part of the jewellery business and I, I've got a friend who collects jewellery um, from um turkish people and every year in tucson they have a a tent set up with with turkish carpets and stuff and it takes three hours for her to buy with endless cups of tea and coming and going and if you don't haggle you can't get it so it's 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 it's, it's typical of, of each different person how they do it you know
0: so so um thinking about i remember um uh, 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 Asael in New York, you know, Salvador Asael. So, share, share a little bit about him as a dealer. Like, he's a legend for paying incredibly high prices for cultured pearls in the so 80s s- and 90s. Yes. You know. Sal-
1: Salvador Asael passed away a few years ago, but he was the king of the modern pearl business. I'd have to say, if Mr. Mikimoto was the most important person in cultured pearls, and Nicholas Paspeli is the most important cultivator of cultured pearls, yeah. and maybe Robert One in Tahiti, yeah. then Mr. Assail was the number one marketer of pearls. And when he saw the first Tahitian harvest in 1967, he bought, he bought the whole harvest, and he picked the finest thousand pearls and sold them to Harry Winston, senior. Harry Winston yeah. himself for a thousand dollars a pearl, a million dollars. And Harry Winston, over three years, sold, sold them all. And he launched the gem in, into the United States market, which has always been the most important modern yeah. market for jewelry by by value you could say India is an enormous market because of weddings and dowries but the United States for sheer opulence with all the fortunes that were made in since the industrial yeah, yeah, revolution yeah. is the the go-to market and Mr. Assail was friends with all the pre- Republican presidents and sold them pearls to President Reagan, President Bush yeah. senior um, he really was the man and he he had a wall of pictures with all the famous people and all the Hollywood celebrities he knew and he was by far the most important marketer and of course within the the business professionally when we're jealous of somebody we don't like them and we disparage them and he was very disparaged but I think he did more for Marketing pearls than anybody else and I met him when I was 18. He took me to dinner and my boss Mr. Wood, said you're going to have dinner with Mr. Assail today. And um, if you divide everything he says by ten, you'll get to the truth. <laughs> That's how he put it. But I was amazed by him, and I was honoured to be able to work for him and Mr. Pass Bailey and take over their joint office, and have endless lunches with him and just see him in action. And he was he was uh, just an amazing dealer with huge courage. He'd go and buy a whole harvest and just know what to do with it. And then when you buy a pearl harvest, there's so many pearls you don't want. You've got to make a lot of money out of the best ones, and yep. you've got to make no money at all on the majority of the ones you don't want. But he was he was a true master.
0: But if you think about that price, $1,000 for the best one, $1,000 a piece for the very best Tahitian pearls, best 100 or 1,000 Tahitian pearls, um, obviously $1,000 in 67 was a lot of money, but if yes. you had a Harry Winston piece of jewelry with an incredible quality Tahitian pearl today from 1967, well, you know the legacy of that brand, and obviously the piece of jewelry they're making. There's a whole collectability around that,
1: and they would have been extraordinary. I, I saw a necklace that um, in Los Angeles to, to value that Armand Hammer bought from Harry Winston, and it was a, the largest black pearl necklace available in the very early '80s, when there wouldn't have been any large pearls, and it mm. was a million and a half dollars to pay for back back in 1982. Wow. And you would have bought you would have bought a, a massive Hollywood estate. For, you know, in the, in the late 60s when, when Harry Winston was buying that. You could buy anything, I suppose. A decent house in 1967. A serious house would have been 50000 American dollars. You'd get an extraordinary house. So jewellery was, um, was valuable.
0: Well, we often say that when anybody ever balks at the price of an expensive gemstone or a piece of jewellery here, you know, people say, this is as much as a house. I say, yeah, but you can't wear a house. Mm-hmm. But um, so talking about how beautiful or how good the quality is of these pearls... Um, it, you know, assay all have the ability to pick the best, but it, as a as a dealer or somebody who's purveying in these things, you you talk about there being a lot of room at the top because very few people are prepared to go in and buy the very best. And um, with
1: pearls, it's very easy because you're if you do buy the whole harvest, luster is the most important value of pearls. Um, where if it's like an onion, the more skins around the the, yeah. the nucleus which is inserted into the host oyster. The more skins you have, the more luster you have. And pearls are essentially, if you were a chemist, you'd say calcium carbonate, um, which is the same as teeth, but it's shinier. Mm -hmm. And um, really, the the more nacre you have coating your pearl, the more luster. And then the depth of color, depending on the host oyster, be it black, white, gold, wherever... Um, but you do have to have a mechanism you buy much better if you buy the pearl harvest the whole thing mm-hmm. and you need a mechanism in your business to sell the duller off shape pearls yep. but when you when you're showing a, a consumer a, a perfect pearl there are no blemishes um, 1% of a harvest is this good and 10% sets clean um, in a piece of jewelry but the customer can see with the naked eyes quite clearly there's no marks and it's super bright and amazing colors so it's it's quite an easy um, item to explain in 10 minutes flat to a, somebody who's never seen a pearl before what to look for and we're quite we're quite lucky in that way yeah. and if you p- look after your pearls at home and you don't spray them with any perfume or hairspray or anything they'll last hundreds and hundreds of years like like la peregrina which is 500 years yeah. old from queen mary through to um through through to elizabeth taylor yes. it's the same composition as a as a cultured pearl exactly so they're quite an enduring item
0: so you touched on the skin of a pearl or the nacre of a pearl, which is the layers that grow around the irritant inside the oyster. Um, in gemstones and jewelry, we have certification, so obviously we've seen certificates come out for for pearls from the GIA, Gemological Institute of America, which is a, you know the global powerhouse in in, in gem institutes. Um, how prolific are certificates in pearls these
1: days you cannot sell a natural pearl for the proper price without the certificate proving it's natural made by nature but in cultured pearls we've never really bothered too much with certificates but individual farmers will give guarantees of the pearls are untampered with they're completely natural the way they've come out of the oyster natural color natural luster there's no artificial heat treatments or anything else but you can't really sell a natural pearl without a certificate
0: okay so then we talk about nacre and we talk about um the thickness of the skin i know i I had a stint in new york and you know i was there at the point in time when the gia were cutting you know cultured pearls and looking cutting through them and measuring the nacre thickness yes um i know some pearl farmers have said well look it's the quality of the nacre that determines the beauty Um, but you're talking to me earlier about um the thickness so it's it. where is that going to go to is the is is the thickness really the length of time in the water and the thickness of the nacre really the prerequisite for beauty
1: i think if you're selling pearls you're basically saying the color is up to you if you like black white gold whatever you like yeah but the but if you never compromise on the luster you know your your um you're buying and putting your money into something really beautiful and if you can see how clean the pearl is even better but even if pearls have good luster and they're a bit spotty which 90 percent of pearls have some surface blemishes they're still really good and I don't see the market going in any particular direction ever I think pearls have been fashionable since Cleopatra's time so there's no fashion element they just they they do seem to be on a roll with um, houses like Chanel Mm. making a lot of bags and the heels of shoes with pearls and items like that but I but I but I think um, people kind of can be persuaded of the of the quality and they find a level if someone's got a thousand dollars to spend they could get a really nice um, freshwater pearl necklace from China or a nice Japanese Akoya necklace or one single mm. good decent australian pearl or tahitian pearl there's something for everyone and if you and if you wanted to spend a hundred thousand dollars and get a really serious necklace or something you could so i don't think people are going to so much demand certificates they're just going to want some sort of um promise from the farmer yeah. these are natural and and a lesson from their seller their a ga- yeah
0: a guarantee and uh, okay so well that leads us on to Uh, 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 you know we'll we'll get on to talking about the next generation or your generation and obviously then charlie who's who's the sixth but in now in terms of the jewelers and designers you just mentioned you know chanel obviously coco chanel really uh used faux pearls as as the way to lead in that glamour that happened in the 1920s and and she really drove that but um there's been some incredible designers out there who've, who've used pearls over the years. Who are the standouts for you in terms of like the, the obscure small designers or whether they're a big jewellery house? Which jewellery house has done it best?
1: I've always loved Chanel for their love of pearls. I've loved Mikimoto for everything they've done because they are the originator of cultured pearls. I've loved Cartier and their use of pearls, you know, going back to, nat- to natural pearl times. Um, I love your house, bunda um i'm not here to plug it no, no, no. particularly but you've you you're somebody who just absolutely understood the amazing quality of the off pearls and all the different pearls and i love the way the past have have created pearls since the 80s instead of just farming them they've become a a retail jeweler as well so all those all those all those names there, there's a, there's some, in, well,
0: obviously we're not a very big name but there's some very very big names in there but then there's also the there's the like I, uh, over the years being at go- doing all of the fairs and being in hong kong a lot and going to uh, and i, I re- there's some italian guys who are really good with pearls they're not so you know there's I, there's a lot of smaller designers out there who really have done some great things it's a good way in in the jewelry market isn't it they're,
1: very good and the, and now the chinese freshwater pearls are so affordable um Well, they always have been, but they're getting better and better and making them. And Japanese Akoya pearls are are plentiful again. There's some amazing designs coming out of everywhere. But I mean, the Italians in the world would have to be the premier designers and the French of other things and artifacts. But Asian designers are amazing as well. There's no better or worse. It's, it's just become a complete global market, and we've seen amazing pearl dealers. Like, as a, there's a chap we both know called Alain Bois in Paris yes. who does supply Chanel and all these houses with amazing pearls. And he all he does is buy the very best of the best, no matter what, and then se- and sell it on. Um, so, really, throughout ages, there's been people have been, you know, deep dealing and making amazing pearls and you can go back to in museums you can go back to 3000 to 5000 BC and find there were there was amazing pearl jewelry like the Egyptians must have had some extraordinary jewelry because they were so wealthy from selling corn to the Roman Empire and various places and their jewelry is incredible and the Sumerian dynasty and you know and pearls have always had this very spiritual quality because they're very connected to the to the moon and the sun and the stars and the tides yeah. and because humanity, humans are made of, I think we're 70 to 90% made of water. So we're very emotional and water-based and when the moon's full, you apparently the New York City police have to put on extra police and nurses because people howl a bit and go yes. crazy with the moon. And pearls, which are grown in tidal areas, cultured, have always been very, it's a tidal thing. So we're, we're intimately related with, with pearls and jewelry. And I think if you spoke to a spiritual healer who deals in crystals and gemstones and pearls, they'd say that the the that God, whatever God is, made gemstones for us for to have natural healing powers as well as be, adornment and beauty. Um, and so designers get inspiration from from every everything really: sun, moon, stars, water, the whole the whole lot, astrology everywhere and it's all sort of wrapped up together
0: in many ways Well, it's interesting i'm doing a uh, a little bit of research before our interview and i'm looking you know obviously i've understood the generally the spiritual attributes around pearls and but i i'd always known or heard you know especially being here in australia we've sold so many expensive pearls to the chinese market and and really the strongest market for the very best pearls and um and I was looking beneath, you know, reading about that, and I saw that, you know, the, the, the Chinese see the pearl as a symbol of wisdom. Yes. Um, and, then- and
1: there's the famous um, myth of the dragon guarding the pearl of great price. And the pearl of great price is symbol. It is a pearl, and the dragon's holding this big round pearl. Yeah. But it is symbolic, as you say, of, of wisdom, of spiritual knowledge, of eternity and um, emotions and and humanity. So it so it's it's deeply symbolic in in Chinese culture.
0: Yes, yeah. It's uh and Oh, well, you know you hit the pearly gates of heaven right so it's, it's exactly it's, yeah. it's, it crosses over into all of the faiths as well and you can I, see it
1: and the, and the amazing thing about a pearl is it's made out of an irritated oyster the oyster's irritated and it covers up this foreign thing with nacre and produces this a pearl so for nowadays with covid we're also irritated by the effects of being locked down not traveling shut down business economic woe in the world and all this stuff but underneath it there's this huge regeneration of care and kindness coming yes. for a lot of people when we get past our individual fears and so it's very symbolic I think the, the pearl of something beautiful coming out of enormous irritation and yeah. that's part of the whole spiritual myth around pearls in a, in a way because it's yeah, the people yeah. in our lives too who are the most irritating who are our greatest <laughs> teachers as we know from our everyone's got family members who are, and we all annoy each other yeah. But they teach us patience and tolerance and all these things. And there's something I think with the Chinese holding the, you know, the pearl as a great symbol of, of wealth, knowledge, abundance, health, all these, all these things that they, and you know, it's funny, but I used to just run around and sell pearls to retailers and wholesalers. Now we sell mostly on television. And whenever the show, so I've done 11 years of TV selling, and whenever the, the lady hostesses put the pearls on for the shows, they say oh my gosh i feel so regal and special and there's something about pearls that has this glowing energy um that just transforms the wearer and they feel better about themselves it's good it's good for everything inside
0: i've seen that firsthand i uh, you know uh, you know as a you know as a young man working in the business you know people often say to me oh well you know how did you learn how to design or make these things and the way I represent, I su- explain that is, is that as in my twenties, I would just see the reaction women would have when wearing jewellery. So that drives my design process now. So, you can, they're very are, are very uh, soothing, I suppose, and powerful. But um, so talking about TV, so Charlie Baron, your...
1: so my elder sister Alice has a son, Charlie. Three three girls and a boy. Charlie is twenty five years old, born in London. And Charlie, from ten, when, we, when he was 10, came to Sydney with his parents. They all walked the Harbour Bridge. He was too small, so he came to my office for the day. And his three big sisters got to climb the Harbour Bridge with the parents. And he spent the afternoon with me, and we had some lunch. Um, and in here, in this very office where my nice. office was, and at 10, he, he finished afterwards and said, right, I'm going to be a pearl dealer. And um, Charlie's funny because he, he's very, he's, he believes in reincarnation and he's sure he's been royal. He can't believe he has to work for a living. He's, hor- he's <laughs> horrified he's not a duke or a king or something. And he feels very tied up with Paris. And he basically decided that when, when I leave school, I'm going to be like Uncle David and be a pearl dealer. So we took him and we sent him to all the best places in the world. He went to the Paspeis, yes. he went to the Autores he went to Edward Asher in Amsterdam and learned diamonds he went to the GIA the Gemological Institute of America in London he went to Japan to our dear friend Andy Muller in Kobe and he basically had this three years of complete study and then became the sixth pearl dealer and we set up the Australian Pearl Company which had um, kind of fallen into nobody had i didn't inherit it and it just sort of died in Mm. a way because i was busy working for the australian farmers and my dad had inherited it so charlie revitalized it and is a london pearl dealer selling to um garards and aspreys and all those sorts of people and he's now learned the estate jewelry business as well so he loves natural pearls and he has become the 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 foremost expert in London at 25 years old of his generation of pearls but each generation somebody seems to take up the mantle and love pearls my brother became an accountant hated going to my dad's office I was obsessed to be in there and Charlie's been the same so he's he's amazing and he's on tv on a channel called Gemporia in the UK for three years now and he's a natural he's absolutely amazing
0: well I I saw him in Hong Kong last year and he he was Running between, you know, two two high end estate jewellery booths, and he yes. had a natural pearl in his pocket, and he just pulled it out and showed me, and said, "Oh, what do you think of this?" And I, I could see that he had the fever; he really loved it. Yes. But um, well, that's it, David. That's an amazing um, you know, journey. I suppose all the way from so <laughs> Nathan all senior all the way through to Charlie, but it, it, it's one thing that you can see that. People get into the jewelry business because they love the gemstones first, and it's um, and it's. Would you say that um. I don't know how we how I could maybe, um. So we might have to cut Sorry, there. Keep going. Keep going? Yeah. So we'll, we'll edit that. Um, so. Uh, oh. So, well, okay. Starting again. So we'll have to cut and then start again. But um, so that's Charlie, and we talked about that. So well, is there anything else on the list? No, I don't think so. So there's pearl, spiritual, the different types, the pearl farmers. I'm just going to wrap it up by saying thank you, David. and I, and think, go. Yeah, yeah. I thought that's where you were going, so it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So say, Great. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to come in today. It's been such a pleasure and, and really an honour to be able to have you as my first guest on the diamond war podcast i'm sure thank
1: you so much i'm so honored to be the first guest and it's so amazing to be able to recall all the all the stories and put it into perspective and, and be with you and i hope we've contributed um, some knowledge and excitement around around yeah. the pearl world on, yeah, on I, Diamond Wars, and I, I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And our families have been so connected now since the since the early nineteen eighties when I met your darling mother Veronica, who's still super active in the business.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. And um, I, you know, that it's just really fantastic to be able to sit down and and to have a have a good insight into the true history of the pearl business. It's an amazing business. It's um, it's It's important in terms of the jewelry world, and there's some incredible characters, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights, and uh, I hope that our our first listeners really get to enjoy this podcast. Thank, thank you. you.
1: Thank you so much.